When the head of core design saw the Sony PlayStation, he knew he was looking at the future. Upon returning to his studio, he called a team meeting and he asked the team for ideas. 3D games that would allow them to be part of this next big thing. An animator among the group spoke up and suggested an idea for a third-person game in which the player would raid mysterious tombs underneath the pyramids. The rest of the team at Core Design was excited by the idea, and the animator, Toby Gard, was given the green light to start his project. What he and the team created with that original concept became the first in the Tomb Raider series, and began a franchise recognized by both gamers and film buffs alike. Today we're going to look at the history of the first Tomb Raider, starting with the history of its development studio core design in its early beginnings, and as it worked through the development of Tomb Raider. So stick around and join us as we participate in our own digital archaeology on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 165th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you the history about one topic relevant to the current week and what else but gaming history. It can be about a game, it can be about a console, a person, a place, just something relevant to this week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we are all going to learn about Tomb Raider, originally released for the Sega Saturn on October 24th, 1996. I'm David Kasson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is always robbing graves. Wait, scratch that. I meant raiding tombs. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, find any good stuff lately? Well, you know, a lot of bones, uh, some cloth. Not a whole lot of goods, though. Are you talking about the forest? No, I wasn't, but that, <laughs> that, was, a good, that was a good one. Yeah, that's what we... F- <laughs> bones, cloth, a cassette tape, stones, maybe some little... Airline alcohol bottles. Yeah, none of that fun stuff. Just just the bones and the cloth and some wood, you know. Yeah. Not a whole lot of fun stuff down in them tombs. I don't know uh, where people got the idea that there was fun stuff, but it, it sure ain't real. Sure ain't real. What are we playing this week? Well, this week has been a light week. It's been RuneScape and Rocket League, and I believe that's it. Yeah, I haven't done a whole lot of gaming. How about yourself? Well, I was on a business trip this week. I didn't get any gaming in while I was gone. But as part of said business trip, I acquired a Xbox of the current generation and uh, plugged it in. And I decided to go fishing. (laughs) Yeah, you did. And boy, did you catch a great old fish. (laughs) Of all the things to load up on the new Xbox, it was but the call of the wild, the angler and the very first fish I caught was what? Like six inches big. And my God, every time you catch a fish in the game, 
it shows a picture of you holding up the fish and like the guy does different things. But for whatever reason, for the first one, he has the biggest grin out of his face and it made me laugh so hard. And I sent it to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely one of those ones that uh, you're just like, oh, tiny fish, big grin. Like a kid would definitely have that kind of grin, but a grown man. I mean, maybe if it was his first time ever fishing, which I guess in his case, it might have been. I'm trying to think what else I. uh, You know, I I never hooked a 4K device up to that 4K TV, so I had a little bit of fun with that. I popped Microsoft Flight Sim on there and loaded into actually funny enough, considering today's topic, I flew by the pyramids of Giza. So that was that was interesting. I went to New York just to just to have fun and. Since Forza Motorsport came out, I also put that on the Xbox and I loaded into that to look at my cars, you know, because they have that fancy mode where you can, you know, open the hood and the doors and everything. So I looked at my cars just to oogle at them in 4K. And I think I think that's it. I don't think I've actually played any game but the fishing game on it yet. Well, there's plenty of time now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I know you've probably have you ever played a Tomb Raider in your life? Uh, I have played Polygon Simula- Simulator. <laughs> Polygon Simulator. Yeah, I-, I played the original. I haven't played any of the new ones. And I guess the original, I don't know that I played the full game. I think it may have only ever been a demo because all I remember was like in the mansion doing the obstacle courses. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, everyone remembers the mansion. So, you know, Rob, there comes a time in every game developer's life when he has a choice to make. Oh, yeah. What's that? Well, these developers, they can either continue to work on hidden gaming gems like the Monty Mole series, Potty Pigeon, Grumpy Grumpy Super Sleuth. Jack the Nipper and Thing on the Spring. All classics. Uh, I'm sorry, what? All classics. No. Or they can decide to move on and create their own development company to create something entirely new. Uh, All of those are new. What the hell? Potty Pigeon? Potty Pigeon. Jack the Nipper? Yeah, Thing on the Spring. What? There was like six Monty Mole games. Actually? Yeah, actually. Yeah, actually. Okay. In, 19, in 1988, Chris Wrigley, Andy Green, Rob Toon, Terry Lloyd, Simon Phillips, Dave Pridemore, Jeremy Heath Smith, Kevin Norburn, and Greg, Greg Holmes did just that. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them had worked for a British software house named Gremlin Graphics. And at Gremlin Graphics, they made all of those hidden gaming gems. You should really go check them out. And Gremlin Graphics might be familiar. Not that it's relevant to this story, but if you're a regular listener of our podcast, you've heard that name before. Gremlin acquired DMI Design Limited in 97, shortly after the studio's success with the first Grand Theft Auto. A few years later, they were bought out by Infogrames, another fantastic name we've heard before. Well, the Grand Theft Auto series went with its publisher, which was BMG Interactive. They were bought by Take-Two, and then Rockstar Games was formed, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, 
these guys all worked for Gremlin and it's in the early before it was all part of uh, Infogrames and they got to work on all those fantastic games and they didn't want to. <laughs> I mean, can you really blame them, Dave? I, I don't know, man. Potty Pigeon. That's that's up there on my childhood. I don't I don't I don't. I don't. I should have asked my UK friends if they knew because that was a UK company. Yeah, no, that those games uh, definitely escaped me. They got Potty Pigeon. We got Pajama Sam. What the hell? I mean, that's not even. And see, even Pajama Sam ain't ringing no bells. Uh, well, yeah, fair enough. I didn't have. I was hoping Pajama Sam because it was after my time. That was more in your generation, but I failed with that one too. Yep, yep, sure did. So it's 1988. All these guys leave Gremlin and potty pigeon behind to start a studio called core design their first project was a port of the overhead vehicular combat game action fighter that was originally developed and published by sega as an arcade cabinet they continued their relationship with sega by porting another arcade cabinet named dynamin dynamin dynamite ducks and this dux the game actually involves ducks that blow up i think Interesting. Why that what was the main know. character named DUX? That's a great question. I don't know. And the then the U has the double the double dots over it, so you know it's ducks. Is that what it's called? No, is double dots an umlaut? I mean, if it's, I guess I, that isn't German, but I guess I don't know if isn't umlaut the curve thing? What's the curve? No, I have no clue. What are phonetic symbols? I don't know. I just go off of German. I don't know phonetics. You're the English guy. You should know IPA, EPA, whatever it is. I don't know. I didn't know. It's not phonetic symbols. Yeah, I I definitely know that in German, it's the two dots used over a vowel. Then it's an umlaut. But that might be different in English. You might not. Diacritic. It's not a phonetic sound. It's called a diacritic, which I don't think I've ever had someone ever tell me that in my life. Okay, anyway, since we got past that, Dynamite Ducks. Fantastic game. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I know all these ports. They helped fund the studios. They worked on their first original title called Rick Dangerous. I hesitate to call it original because it's a platform game largely based on Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It even starts with the famous scene in which you're running away from a rolling boulder. Okay, but so is Crash Bandicoot. Maybe not starts, but Crash Bandicoot does that too. So you're telling me that's loosely based on this too? Well, the plot all involves like, you know, going and getting artifacts from tombs and stuff like that. It's very much based on Indiana Jones. You're just you're taking a lot of elements that aren't necessarily a thing and sure. making them into a thing. The Wikipedia is literally the first line says Rick Dangerous was largely based on Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, Wikipedia can be edited by anyone, Dave. So don't forget that. That's very true. Thank you for offending the people of my profession. You're welcome. I mean, hey, I could go on there right now and say that it's loosely based on Die Hard. Fair. It could be. It could be. Yippee-ki-yay. Although Rick Dangerous was clearly inspired by the film at the time, the studio settled into making many more actually original games, including the sequel. There was Rick Dangerous 2. It was not largely based on Indiana Jones. One of those such games was called Corporation in 1990, which was one of the earliest 3D first-person shooters ever created. We think of Wolfenstein 
in that role, but this actually predates it by four years. It was released here in the United States as CyberCop. It was really impressive. It was, as far as we can tell, the first shooter of this kind to feature dynamic lighting. It had role-playing elements. It had stealth and hacking elements. You know, we had recently talked about how Revolutionary System Shock was for having all these elements back in episode 156. You know, when we were talking about Bioshock, which is what that episode was based on. But Core Design has managed to integrate all of that stuff together in CyberCop slash Corporation here, even four years before System Shock was out. So, And there were other games that the studio worked on. The Curse of Enchenanita, Thunderhawk, Carve Up, Wonder Dog, Asterisk and the Great Rescue well known to a bunch of people who played the Sega in the beginning. That was like a, one of the titles that was pretty well known for the Sega Master System. They snagged a few licensed titles too. They helped make Monty Python's Flying Circus, the computer game, and they helped make the Sega version of Hook, which was the video game adaption of the 1991 film. I think that's the one that has Robin Williams in it. I think so too, yeah. I mean, did they ever make another Hook? No, you're right. Yeah. The core design was actually the first British studio to be granted a license to publish Sega Genesis games. And they kind of built themselves this reputation for producing strong games for the Amiga and the Sega CD in particular later on. Among the games that they had made for Sega's consoles, among them was the 1991 slapstick side-scrolling platform game Chuck Rock and its sequel, Chuck Rock 2, Son of Chuck, which came out a year later in 1992. The success of the first Chuck Rock actually led to core design using Chuck as an early mascot for the studio. Uh, he remained their mascot until they were bumped off by you know today's topic. And the success of Chuck 2, for some reason led to the studio deciding that they wanted to make a spinoff called BC Racers, which is a racing simulation with a prehistoric theme. In it, interesting. millionaire playboy caveman Millistone Rockefeller has organized a BC bike race, the winner of which will receive the ultimate Boulder Dash bike. Six group of riders, one driving, one deploying weapons from the sidecar, so they race in pairs from all around the prehistoric prehistoric world will use their rock-powered sidecars to compete for this prize. That is an interesting concept. It is. To design BC Racers, Core Design hired a video game designer named Toby Gard. Well, Gard was hard at work creating BC Racers. His boss, Jeremy Heath-Smith, took a trip to the United States where he was introduced to Ken Kutaragi and the Sony PlayStation. See, at the time, the studio was primarily focused on making 2D games for the Sega 32X and the Atari Jaguar. But in the PlayStation, he saw the future. So when he came back, he called a meeting in which the whole studio, the whole 25 people that were employed at the studio, they all came together, and he asked them for ideas of 3D games that would sit well on the PS1. And it was Toby Gard who suggested that they create a third-person game in which the player would raid mysterious tombs deep underneath periods. The idea, he said, 
was that he wanted to make a game like Ultima Underground with the same sort of polygon figures that were seen in Virtual Fighter. He believed that by mixing the two up, he could make some sort of interactive movie. Now, the team loved the idea of what mysteries could possibly be found deep underground, so Heath Smith gave Guard the green light to work on his project once BC Racers was finished. Gotta finish up BC Racers, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, the game is going to turn out to be number one. It's also the third game in the Chuck Rock series that has no connection to Chuck Rock whatsoever. Well, it's because Rock and BC. BC, BC prehistoric. You're right. You're 100. And that's what the game designers thought, too. Yeah. So they finished up BC Racers and about six months later, they sat down to work on what would become Tomb Raider. And to do so, they had to bring together all the right people and tools. Speaking of tools, Rob, we know the importance of using the right tool for the job, don't we? Before we found the all-in-one podcasting solution for Zencaster, we were having all sorts of problems putting this podcast together. Yeah, that's right, Dave. I remember how frustrated you would get when something didn't work the way you needed it to. It was the worst. I was so frustrated, but that all changed once I found Zencaster. With Zencaster... It's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It also allows you to record up to 4K video with your guests, if video is how you'd like to present yourselves. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection's unstable. And with Zencaster, you'll never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those ums, ahs, all those awkward pauses. They're all gone with the click of a button. You can set the right podcast loudness. You can reduce background noise. There's all sorts of easy things that they help you with. So if thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, you can relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to major suppliers like Spotify, Apple, and others. So if you'd like to start your own podcast, or maybe you already have one and you're looking for tools to take it to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use the code memory card lane. It's all one word, memory card lane. You'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. Sign up for Zencaster today. And you can experience the same ease in producing your own high-quality podcast as we do week in and week out. So like I said, Rob, it was time to put all the pieces together and start the development of Guard's project. For the first six months, he was paired up with programmer Paul Douglas. They occupied a single room on the ground floor of a Victorian home. That was what Core Design used as an office at the time. And in said room, Guard and Douglas found themselves hard at work on the design of Tomb Raider. So originally, Toby's concept was just a guy in some tombs. A guy in proper core design form that looked remarkably similar to Indiana Jones. So for obvious reasons, Guard was asked to change that. And as he went through those changes, he started to lean towards the idea of a female lead. As he fleshed the whole concept out, he first thought that he would give the player a choice of genders, 
But once he realized that doing so meant twice as much work, he decided to scrap the idea and just eventually leaned himself heavily towards a female character named Laura Cruz. She was a mix of many different influences, such as the movie Tank Girl, Indiana Jones, obviously, and the John Woo-directed action flick Hard Boiled. And no doubt when you talk about Tomb Raider and its main character, who ended up becoming Laura Croft, you have to talk about one of the things she's fairly famous for, and that's exaggerated proportions. What you talking about, Willis? Big boobs. The triangles of doom. The triangles of doom. When asked why he created Lara with larger-than-life physical attributes, he said, I think exaggeration is the key to making clearer, more recognizable characters. Caricature, for instance, can often communicate an idea faster and more clearly than a realistic representation can. Lara is a caricature of a feisty, attractive woman. By the time production began here in this Victorian room, the concept in place that Douglas recalls when he was brought on was an unnamed woman running around a dungeon shooting things. He was shown three to four sketches. Yes, they were exaggerated, uh, presented the name of the project, which was already Tomb Raider, and they were set to work. After the core was in place, they sat down and continued to work on the who, what, when, why, where. And after some time, it was time to assemble the rest of the development team. Heather Stevens was added to the team as a level designer. She had just been hired into Core after a seven-year stint with Rare. Rare, of course, is what? Donkey Kong Country and Goldeneye and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. She later recalled in an interview having a difficult time trying to wrap her head around what Toby wanted to create. To put this into context, 3D gaming at this time was dominated by the dooms of the era, and a third-person shooter was something that no one really had experience with. It wasn't until Guard modeled a tomb scene using 3D Max, 3DS Max rather, that the concept clicked for Stevens. She recalled, It was a beautifully rendered Egyptian tomb with light shafts and dust clouds. As he panned the camera through it, I thought, Okay, I know where he's going with this now. Programmer Gavin Rummer recalled sitting on the stairs of the courthouse as Guard described his vision to him for Tomb Raider. He was obviously very enthusiastic about it because it was a big idea and he'd managed to get the okay to make it. It was all going to be very visual and he was on about how much it was going to be like a movie and groundbreaking with a 3D character leaping about. I was just sitting there thinking, what? My God, who's given this guy the okay to do this? How is this going to happen? <laughs> Nice. That's that's always a great thought. Yeah. Well, Rubbery was added to the team. This is actually the first game he ha- he ha- ever worked on. Uh, but as it turns out, he was an incredibly important contribution to the team. Early on in the development, he made a cus- custom room editor, basically, that made it way easier for the team to build out levels. And speaking of levels... Level designer Neil Boyd recalled Toby Gard giving him an early demo. I just remember thinking it was so fluid. I was taken back. I thought, wow, even though I didn't know the context. And finally, programmer Jason Gosling was added to the development team, and the six of them make up the original core of Tomb Raider. So as they worked through, Laura Cruz herself continued to be refined. 
one of the articles I pulled to research this topic cracked me up. It's a Eurogamer article titled 20 Years On, The Tomb Raider Story Told by the People Who Were There, written by Wesley Ian Poole. In talking about Lara's model, he wrote, Looking back at Lara Croft's first incarnation now, it's easy to sneer at her hypersexualized design. The tiny waist and huge breasts appealed to the teenage male gamer demographic at the time, but Tomb Raider found a female audience too, unprecedented for video games at the time, because of Lara's other characteristics. She was strong and intelligent. Yes, she had massive tits, but she didn't need a man. Truer words have not been spoken? <laughs> As the team reminisces about the process, there are some interesting things that they had to say. They're all found in this article. Boyd said, Toby developed the model to look like his drawings. I knew we'd get flack from people, but he wasn't bothered, bothered about that. He was happy with the way she was. I don't know whether he had a thing for big breasts. He was a very secretive guy. He'd never answer a question straight. Rummery said that Toby was obviously trying to make her sexy because that was meant to be part of her character. He always claims he slipped on the mouse and made the breast bigger than he meant to. But how true that is, I don't know. Seems legit. He added, she was just meant to be curvy and attractive. Toby said, if you're going to be following behind her, she might as well be appealing to look at. It worked for both men and women on that basis because women liked they were playing a female character in the first place. And when asked about it himself in a later interview, Kobe, Toby Gard had to say this. She wasn't a tits for a tits out for the lads type of character in any way. Quite the opposite, in fact. I thought that what was interesting about her was that she was this unobtainable, austere, dangerous sort of person. So regardless of how you feel about the model of Laura, it's very clear that a lot of time was put into animating it. Gard is said to have spent countless hours working on the animations, and he would often add new moves without telling the rest of the team. Lara's famous handstand move was one such animation. We were testing every day, and then someone went shit. I didn't know that that was in the game, Boyd recalled. Why didn't you tell us? Toby said, I wanted to see if you would come across it. He would go a bit further to add something else in there, and rather than just say, that's fine, he'd you know, then move on to the next animation. So he liked to surprise people with his stuff. It was pretty impressive because he had to hand animate everything. You know, the, we, we've talked about this with other games from this era. And motion capture really wasn't, it wasn't a thing at the time. Like it, it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't very good. Right. So we've heard that again, where other teams, I think we talked about it a couple weeks ago with Tony Hawk. Yeah, we talked about the same concept with Tony Hawk. They would have been making Tony Hawk, uh, I don't know, within within five years. That they felt motion capture wasn't ready at that time, and that would have been four or five years later. So they hand animated it. They're doing the same thing here. So the platforming on the game design is very much inspired by the Prince of Persia. That's another platformer that we covered on episode 58. Very important to gaming history. One of the first games that did rotoscoping well, which is the concept of like videotaping something and then integrating it into a game frame by frame, almost like an early archaic version of motion capture. Right. Right. Yeah, I'd say so. You know, on that topic real quick, 
So Jordan Mechner, Prince of Persia, the, he created a game before it called, I always call it Karatika. But the guys in the podcast episode I just listened to and call it Karatika, which kind of makes a lot of sense because it's karate with ka at the end. So they called it Karatika. But even Jordan himself flirts between Karatika and Karatika. Um, but supposedly they make they made a interactive documentary, like a remaster of the game called The Making of Karatika. And it's supposedly really good. Something I need to get my hands on. So fair you enough. Can, you can like learn about the process and then and they're talking about this. And Jordan says, like, it's amazing. He wishes all his games were done it. And like it would like you can play the game in iterations you can stop at certain prototypes and it will show you because one of the things we talked about in that episode is Jordan kept really detailed diaries. So like you can pull, you can pull yourself out of like the prototype and go look at the diary where he talks about having to add this or take this out or things like that. And it just, it brings all these things together in like a playable way, which Jordan himself said was pretty freaking awesome. So Hmm. It was it was like walking through an interactive museum of one of my games. So I need to pick that up. I need to pick up the Atari 50 collection because that was made by the same group and it's similar, apparently. Got to find it, Dave. Yep. So Tomb Raider, as they're working on refining Laura's model and everything, the team then needed a story to build their design around, as we already talked about. The early concept was about underground tombs. So the team was really already set on, you know, tombs and pyramids. Garden Douglas had kind of already created a rough draft in that first six months. That was their initial game design. It involved Laura Cruz being confronted by a rival group called the Chaos Raiders. It would go from there. But in 1995, Core Design brought in a writer, Vicki Arnold, to flesh that concept out. It would be her job to write the dialogue and to create a cohesive narrative around locations that were selected by the design team. Now, the design team planned on setting the story in real archaeological locations, which allowed them to represent different cultures. So Boyd and Stevens, they immersed themselves in the literature and the history of these cultures. They included the Incan Empire, Incas, Incan, Classical Greece, and ancient Egypt, all to expand on their ideas. Arnold then took their locations, their initial concepts, what they now had come up with with the character of Laura Cruz, and they kind of filled the gaps around it. Um, that was that was her job. She filled the gaps around it, and she designed the story as we know it today. Now, there were also some really interesting design choices that were made during the development of the game. You know, there are a lot of animal enemies in the first Tomb Raiders. This was meant to ground enemies, not enemies, to ground players in the world uh, before some of the more fantastical elements appeared. Uh, in addition that to that, it's easier to animate and program animals as opposed to, ha- to humans. We're messy people, us humans. No, not at all, Dave. <laughs> the staff really was also kind of uncomfortable with Laura killing many humans, so they reduced, yeah, so they didn't want to put many in there for that to be a possibility. 
Related to this concept, it was originally supposed to be more of a combat-oriented game, but as they, you know, worked on level design, they found themselves leaning more on platforming and puzzle solving, and as a result, they changed, right? They decided to use enemy placement to create tension. They changed, by doing so, they changed the atmosphere from pure action to more of a they were going for like a tension, like a horror movie inspired unease. And of course, Laura, Laura herself obviously changed her development. She was originally going to be a man in the, in the original concept. And then she was Laura Cruz, a Southern American woman with braided hair. They couldn't get the braids to work programming wise. They just couldn't figure out how to make them lay right. They would go through her body and bump into things and everything. So the braids had to go too. Um, and then feedback from the development team, like the managers, the people above them, kind of led to a choice that she would become more UK friendly, that they wanted to make her a fellow Brit. And uh, with that, she was evolved into the Lara Croft we know today. Her first name, Lara, came from a baby name book that one of the managers at CORE had. The team had opened it looking for names that were a bit more unusual, but adjacent to Laura. And her last name, Croft, came from a Derby telephone book. They were looking for a British replacement for her last name, which was Cruz. They just started at the name Cross, and they kept looking for something interesting, and they landed on Croft. So there you go. Hmm. Definitely uh, an interesting way to come to that. The team worked on versions of this game for the Sony PlayStation, Sega Saturn, and the MS-DOS PC version all at the same time. They use pretty much the same base code with some additional code layered on top of each that was specific to each platform that would obviously make it work for said platform. Tomb Raider was released for the Sega Saturn first because Core and Sega ended up coming to a timed exclusivity deal in Europe. As a result... That meant that the team had to finish the Saturn version of the game six weeks earlier than they had planned on. It made the end of development a crunch for this team and not very pleasant. They had to work stupid long hours in the office because of this crunch too. The Saturn version of the game is notoriously more buggy than the others. It has some famous bugs like they didn't get rid of corners on the polygon so you can actually jump up like the corners of the room like there's ways to glitch into it what's another one there's another famous bug where you can't collect an item because there's a, there's like collectibles in the game to collect you know for completion and you can't collect an item in like the last room of the game like one of the last ones it's it, it bugs out so you know not not huge deals not at all just, you know, a speedrunner's dream and a completionist nightmare. You're damn straight about that. But the Saturn version ended up being like a playtest, you know, like a ultimate ultimate playtest for the uh, for Tomb Raider. It, you know, they were able to get those bugs fixed for all the other versions. Yeah. Another fun note, after its release, Core Design began to negotiate with Nintendo to port Tomb Raider over to the Nintendo 64. What? They, really? Yeah, they started to plan it. They 
We're actually working to redesign the game mechanics to account for the, you know, the N64 has the different analog stick controls than the the PlayStation. But that port obviously never panned out. Development kits never came. And before they could actually get to that point, Sony negotiated a deal to keep Tomb Raider exclusive to the PlayStation until the year 2000. No, no Nintendo port. Hmm. All in all, development on Tomb Raider lasted 18 months. During that time, Core Design was actually sold to a company called Center Gold, which was subsequently purchased by Eidos Interactive. As a result, Core Design developed Tomb Raider while Eidos became its publisher. There's all sorts of things where Eidos, like, Eidos wanted to, Eidos pressured them to have selective genders, and Eidos pressured them to change this, and Eidos pressured them to change that. And, uh, you know, my understanding is that the boss at the time, that Jeremy Heath Smith, did a real good job keeping Eidos off the development team's back while they, um, while they finished well, they finished the project and turned it into what we know today. Yeah, they had a game to finish, man. Come on. Yep. So they got all this stuff done and, you know, they brought Tomb Raider to the world on October 24th, 1996. For those of you who don't know, Tomb Raider is an action adventure video game. It follows archaeologist adventurer Lara Croft. You probably know it's now a famous movie who was hired by businesswoman Jacqueline Naida to find an artifact called the Scion of Atlantis. You basically go through tombs. There are these levels split into multiple areas, split into multiple rooms. You fight enemies, and you solve puzzles to progress. Rob, you said you remember the obstacle course in the mansion, right? Yeah, that's the only thing that I can remember. I didn't play any of the later games in the series, but as far as the original, I just I remember that mansion, the obstacle course and struggling the hell out of it every time that I would pick that up. And that's kind of probably why I don't know. Like I said, I feel like it was a demo because I couldn't go beyond that. But I, I don't know for certain. Did the other ones have the the obstacle course, too? I can't remember. Asking the wrong person there, Dave. Yeah, I'm sure. I remember Tomb Raider. I mean, this was a big game when it came out. <clears throat> I, too, remember the mansion. I don't have much recollection of the, the the rest of it. To be fair, I played most of the Tomb Raiders and I don't even the new ones. And I, I, I don't have recollection of them either. <laughs> Which is probably sad. They're great games. Well, I, I do know the what like as far as one of the newer games that it's was for the longest time used as a staple to test how well a computer was built. But I, I get this point. I don't know if that's still the case. So they're yeah, obviously they're, beautiful games. No, they're beautiful. still they're, they're good looking games. They're just good games. The the they're they're good games. It was a good game. It was different. I remember being frustrated with the controls because they weren't precise. It was one of the first 3D for third per person games and it it was a platforming game, but it wasn't like precise because we weren't there at the time. Like that just wasn't a thing. Like we need to get it to work. It just wasn't a thing. Like but it didn't need to be a thing at the time if that made sense. Like I remember being irritated with it, but you accepted it because that's the way it was. Like you learned to work with that. But if you took that and you put it into a modern context, I mean, this game would have been run out the room because now we expect responsiveness from our controls. But we didn't really at the time because there wasn't anything to compare it to, you know? 
Nah, very true. Uh, this would have been 96. I think the Sony PlayStation game, what did I say? Would it come out six months later or something like that? Six weeks? Six weeks. So it would come out in November. What is this? I would have been 12 going on 13. Yeah, I was the right age to be interested in a triangle polygon figure. So damn straight you were, Dave. All all the boys had a crush on Lara Croft. No, of course. One of. One of. So there was. There was this. Rumor going around that the game had a cheat code that would allow you to take Lara's clothes off to be nude. Apparently, Eidos did suggest it to developers to add, but they refused. And there is no nudity in the game. Not officially. No, there's none. Core Design has said they didn't put it in. Oh, well, that's true. I'll get to that. However, in the sequel, they added a code that blows Lara off instead of like what the nude code was supposed to be by the rumor. If you use it in the sequel, she blows up. So, oh, oh, OK. Of course, you can't change a Sega Saturn and you can't change a Sony PlayStation version. But there was an MS-DOS version for this made. And with everything ever made for a computer, someone is bound to change it. So, yes, there is a very infamous part of Tomb Raider's history. It is a fan-made software patch dubbed Nude Raider. It is exactly what it sounds like. When you add the patch to the PC version of the game, it causes Lara to appear naked. Then 1999, Core Design considered taking legal action against websites that hosted nude pictures of Lara Croft, stating that we have a large number of young fans and we don't want them stumbling across the pictures when they do a general search for Tomb Raider. Eidos then sent cease and desist letters to the owners of NudeRaider.com that hosted the patch to enforce its copyright of Tomb Raider. Also, the sites that had the nude images of Lara Croft were sent cease and desist notices. This is one of those very early. This is one of those very early, like Rule Thirty Four deals, you know, because I can't remember games before this having something like this, and then for Lara Croft, it became a big deal. I think in the end, Eidos Interactive was awarded the rights to the Nude Raider domain name too. Like they ended up winning that in the process too. So, hmm. didn't know they, that part they, of it. They never used it, which is a shame. They could have. They could have been blown up. Well, I mean, now now it's definitely a thing. I mean, now. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, the, okay. So back then there was no Rule Thirty Four, but now there is a Rule Thirty Four, right? So I mean, now we oh, know for it's, sure. It's definitely a thing. So, yeah. So you had Tomb Raider. You had Nude Raider. And then, of course, Tomb Raider was insanely successful, very popular. It was commercially and critically acclaimed. So people bought millions of copies and critics loved it. So, of course, of course, there's going to be a sequel. They started a sequel immediately after the first game pretty much came out and they had an inkling that it was going to be successful. So you had Tomb Raider 2 that was released a year later. You know, with the success of Tomb Raider, Core Design, they now had a very clear idea of what they wanted out of the Tomb Raider series. They were no longer interested in letting Toby Gard run with the same just creative freedom 
that they had forwarded him for the first game. You know, they there was very little oversight over what what the team did for Tomb Raider. And he was basically given a choice after the first game came out. They told him you can either work on the N64 port of Tomb Raider. This was, of course, before the deal fell through. You can either work on the port of Tomb Raider or you can help us make Tomb Raider 2 look like this. That was the choice he was given. And frankly, that just wasn't appealing to him. So he left and he took his co-designer, Paul Douglas, with him. They left Core Design and they created a company called Co-Founding Factor. Now, Co-Founding Factor created exactly one game. It took a long time to create. It was stuck in development hell for many years. It ended up being released on the original Xbox, but not until 2004. It is a game called Galleon. Never heard of it. That's how popular it was. Yeah, I can't say I've heard of it either. And while they were off creating Galleon as co-founding factor, the Tomb Raider series continued under core design and Eidos Interactive. There were from some successes along the way. Tomb Raider 2, Tomb Raider 3, and then they get into the rest of the series, like Legends, stuff like that. Um, but 2003's Tomb Raider The Angel of Darkness, which was developed by Core Design, was an absolute disaster. It was meant to be a new generation of Tomb Raider games, for a meant to be the start, rather, of a new generation of Tomb Raider games for a new generation of consoles, but the game was just a mess. The development process was full of problems. The team never worked through them enough to make it a great game. This is pretty much reflected in how people feel about it. The Metacritic score for Angel of Darkness is a 52 out of 100. Most of the most of the articles, like the critic articles it's linked to have it as like a C, C minus 40 something out of 150 something out of 100. So it's a mediocre game at best. Because of this, the Tomb Raider franchise was handed off to a new developer, an American developer named Crystal Dynamics, and they ended up rehiring Toby Gard to help redesign Lara and the Tomb Raider series. Toby continued working on Tomb Raider for the next few installments. He did a trilogy, so Tomb Raider Anniversary... I don't remember what the first one was. Maybe not a trilogy. He did Tomb Raider Anniversary and Tomb Raider Underworld, and then he left Crystal Dynamics. He made a few games, put Tomb Raider back on the right track, and then he left. From 2010 to 2012, he worked on a webcomic called Otherworld. From 2012 to 2014, he was the game director for Yaiba Ninja Gaiden Z at Spark Unlimited. In 2014, he founded a studio called Tangentlemen. That's kind of fun. Tangentlemen. He worked as director on a PlayStation VR title called Here They Lie. And now he is the owner of Cathuria Games. They created an indie game called Dream Cycle. And I don't know what they're currently working on. I couldn't really find any information on what he's up to at the moment. So, yeah. So, I mean, Toby has continued working. He dipped out of Tomb Raider. It failed. He dipped back in to put it on the right path. And it's done pretty good since then. You know, after Tomb Raider Underworld, which was the last game that Toby was part of, there was a gap in the Tomb Raider series. And then Crystal Dynamics completely rebooted it. 
into the modern series that we know today. These three games, Tomb Raider, Rise of the Tomb Raider, and Shadow of the Tomb Raider, they are, you know, Rob was talking about how one of them is used to show how great, how hard computers can do our graphics. They make up what's called the Survivor Trilogy. They are excellent games. I highly recommend them. I there are three games I've both played and like played to completion, like 100% at all of them. Cause I really enjoyed playing them. So I'm a big fan of, of modern tomb Raider. Crystal dynamics tried to spin off tomb Raider into a Lara Croft series. They're not so much about tomb Raiding, more about Lara herself. They are Lara Croft in the guardian of light and Lara Croft, in the temple of Osiris. They're like, top down not top down it's an isometric view so they're more like dungeon crawlers like diablo or early fallout is the better way to put it and they're more about like teamwork because you play with people i think they're co-op and so on and so forth they're they're not tomb raider it's a spin-off series so i think they were recently released for like the switch and a lot it's called the lara croft collection the marketing is really trying to separate it from Tomb Raider. Like they're very clear. It's a spinoff. It's not meant to be Tomb Raider. After Tomb Raider, the Angel of Darkness failed. Uh, like I said, and you know, Tomb Raider was given to Crystal Dynamics. When that happened, pretty much the entire management team at Core Design left. They all formed a new company called Circle Studio. May 2006, uh, Core Design's assets and staff were sold to an independent developer named Rebellion Developments. Um, in the recent era, they're best known for the Sniper Elite series and Zombie Army. What was left? Uh, what was left? What was left of the core team that was sold to Rebellion worked on a few other titles. Nothing was really successful. So as a result, what was once Core Designed then became Rebellion Derby, and Rebellion Derby was closed in March of 2010. Actually, March 17th, 2010. Stuck in my brain that it was closed on St. Patrick's Day, 2010. That kind of sucks. Damn. So, <laughs> yeah, so Core Design never really... It never really survived losing Tomb Raider. Like, that was its heyday. You know, it was around since 1980... What, I said 88? 89? And flourished through the Tomb Raider years, but then fumbled, fumbled a game, lost the Tomb Raider series and then kind of folded. So, you know, all the important, uh, I mean, everyone who was anyone for it has all, they've all moved on to do other things in the industry. It's not like it caused anyone to drop out of the industry, but as a team, their time was done. It was time to move on. We see that story over and over again, you know? So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of a lot of other stuff, a lot of inspirations, you know, a, a lot for a long time. Core design was core design was the thing, you know, they they worked on Tomb Raider and, and they were kind of on top of the world. Tomb Raider was a big, a big, big game. So. But there were a lot of big games in the story. You know, we talked about what System Shock and we talked about. What else? What else came up in this one? I know that there were other things that came up in this one. It wasn't just System Shock. Bioshock, System Shock. The one about the rotoscoping. Oh, yeah. Prince of Persia, Grand Theft Auto. 
these are all great things that we've done other episodes on. So if you want to learn the history of them, I was just going to check out our old episodes. As always, you can find those archived on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can you find on memorycardlane.com? Well, Dave, you can find a calendar of previous future episodes, maybe for the future ones. Put a little note in there of some interesting topics or come interesting little tidbits of information that you may have about said topic. You can find a link to our discord where you can come hang out with Dave and I and maybe play some games or just talk random stuff. You can find a link to our Patreon where for a couple bucks you can help support us and get access to ad free and unedited versions of our episodes. And you can find links to things such as our social media, where I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on different platforms as David is wrong. Each week, we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. When doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. When we teach you things we learn things. That's the best part about doing this podcast is the ability to learn week in, week out, and then take what we learn and teach other people and inspire them to want to go and do the same. So in recognition of this fantastic cycle, we like to talk about what we've taken away from each episode. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, I think that the biggest takeaway I have from all of this is knowing that Lara Croft almost wasn't, and it was gonna be uh, a laura cruz or even an indiana jones knockoff yeah it's it's definitely funny just to think because you know obviously this was something that i grew up on um even though i never played through the games i was still very familiar with it because that damn mansion obstacle course i did many many times and it's just funny to know that hey this could have actually been indiana jones could have been you know harrison ford that i'm making do all this fun stuff yeah, that's just kind of kind of cool to think about. So, yeah, I think that's that's the big one is just knowing that obviously the design changes had to happen, but just knowing what could have been had they uh, just decided not to or even, you know, shoot, maybe they got licensing for Indiana Jones and it could have been that. And then Tomb Raider as is never would have been. True statement. So what about you? What is your big takeaway at the week? Well, since you just took mine, I have to think real quickly for oh. another one. <laughs> No, I mean it was it was interesting. I um yes, Lara changed during development, but the whole game changed during development. And it was really interesting, you know, when you dive into the interviews with everyone and you know, there's some really in-depth interviews from Paul Douglas where he did a QA and people got to ask him and he, and they talked about like all the changes, like there were supposed to be dinosaurs in the game at one point. And they talked about the chaos Raiders and they talked about how there were plot changes in the game. And, you know, I always get really fascinated by kind of what you said. I like the what ifs, like what if this hadn't changed? What would Tomb Raider look like now? Would it still be as popular as it is now? Like where like I just like all the what ifs and there was a bunch of them in the story. So um, it was really fun to see how the game changed as they went through the development process. And that's it. Most definitely, Dave. That'll be Tomb Raider. Rob, before I take it out of here, is there anything else that you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, I want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. 
we really appreciate that you take this journey on with us each week and week out, and we hope that we bring a little bit of knowledge to your life about video games that you may or may not go away within the next hour or two, but hey, at least you're here with us for the ride. Very, very true. All right, Rob, well, next week we're going to be talking about some of the earliest multiplayer dungeon crawl games. Among them is Gauntlet, originally released for arcades in late 1985. Gauntlet was an absolute force to be reckoned with at the arcades, and its four-player gameplay had gamers dropping quarters alongside their friends. As part of Gauntlet's story, we'll look at the games that inspired it. We'll, we'll talk all about the controversy that surrounds that inspiration. So stick around and join us next week as we do some dungeon crawling of our own on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do-ba-do-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-do.